Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Gary Cernovitz, Managing Director at Lime Rock Partners, an oil and gas-focused private equity firm that manages $10 billion, where he runs the firm's investor relations and business development efforts. He's also the author of The Counting House, a fictional story about a CIO who oversees a $6 billion college endowment. After 20 years observing CIOs, Gary brings his pointed, witty writing with a nuanced understanding of someone sitting in the CIO seat. Our conversation discusses the perspective Gary brings to his latest book, the challenges of serving as a CIO, and insights from two decades of manager meetings. Sitting outside the CIO seat, Gary shares a side of the CIO role that many experience, but few are comfortable discussing on the podcast. Before we get going, we're hosting our fifth cohort of Capital Allocators University in New York City on February 22nd. CAU is designed for allocators with 5 to 15 years of experience to connect with each other and learn critical frameworks to help advance their careers. Rahul Mudgal and I will be joined by a few past guests on the show for a day filled with presentations about skills, Q&A, and small group discussions. For those who have attended one of the first four cohorts, we're now ready for you to return for a second semester, too. Spots are limited, so hop on the website and register today. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators University. Please enjoy my conversation with Gary Cernovitz. Cernovitz. 
Gary, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Why don't you take me through your quick background that prepared you to write this book? Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, went to college, Cornell. The whole time, I was very certain of my future, which was to be a PhD academic historian. Summer before the senior year of college, I was in London doing research on an undergraduate thesis. By the end of the summer, realized maybe I don't want to be an academic historian. <laughs> and the historians of the British Library are like, we don't need a Jewish guy from Milwaukee adding to an already very well-covered history. I was fortunate to be born in 1973, the demographic lull in a post-war America. And so at that time, you can get a job with just a liberal arts education. I had no interest in finance particularly, and I had no experience. I had two job offers in front of me. One was to be a speechwriter for the Parks Commissioner here in the city, and the other was to be a junior equity research analyst at Goldman Sachs. And I took the junior equity research analyst at Goldman Sachs. I did that for a couple of years assigned to the energy group. Eventually, I got promoted to look at Latin American oils. After that promotion, I had a very big bout of insomnia and started writing what was my first novel. And I've always been a big reader of novels, always been interested in it. 25 years old, took the job in finance lightly because it was never something I'd really sought, announced like a real pretentious asshole that I was quitting to write a novel and finished the novel sold to almost all my immediate family, had another novel <laughs> that sold to maybe some second cousins, also bought it. And then in 2004, the founders of LimeRock private equity firm, energy-focused private equity firm where I work, they were looking for someone to actually write their Fund 3 PPM. I was like, I've never written a PPM. They're like, well, take the Fund 2 PPM and upgrade it. We'll pay you by the week. Classic lobster in the pot or the frog in the pot. 20 years later, that role has gotten a lot bigger, but it's also been very fortunate where it was always this understanding between them that writing was always going to be an important part of my life. And they've been shockingly hands off. So, where did the idea come about for the counting house? I wrote a book about seven, eight years ago on the shale revolution that was primer in my voice on the shale revolution. And I'd always thought a book like that around the age of alternatives, private equity hedge funds, et cetera, would be fun to write, but also never felt particularly compelled to write it. When you have a full-time job, you really have to, have to really be gripped by something to obviously write it, especially the time I quit Goldman. I was like a very pretentious and severe novelist. The novel is the highest form of the written word. But then after writing two, they got published. Two didn't get published. I'd put it to the side. And my wife, after me moping around the house for a while, she's like, well, you haven't written a word of fiction in 11 years. Here's a story you always tell. Write in a fictional format. Take a Sunday and write something. So I did it. And then all of these private notes on this other nonfiction book just clicked into place into really what the format became of the, of the novel, how it would go, how it would end, who would be the protagonist. It all clicked together in an intuitive way of just subterranean thoughts for many years. So what is the core thesis of this novel? There's a V.S. Naipaul line that a novel is a sum of opinions that don't add up to a point of view. The purpose of it is trying in a classic novelistic way to combine ideas and feelings of really what it means to be an investor today. Finance in fiction today usually has two main formats. One is we want to write about rich people in New York City. They need to have a job. We'll ask our college buddy who works at a hedge fund to give us some notes and some trades. We'll have corny names for firms. We'll put in some prostitutes, probably a lot of cocaine. And then the other one is in the school of liars poker, like the young person coming into New York and working in a job. But it's really classic building romance. But none of them really treated finance 
and investing. It's always the backdrop about the setting being more the fabric than the backdrop. So this one, I really wanted investing to be the fabric of the novel. The thesis of the novel is, can I capture in a LA to New York plane read, funny, but also pretty serious novel, what it means to be an investor today? And that is a window to what it means to be alive today. How do you describe the book jacket summary of what it's about? It's about the chief investment officer who's unnamed through most of the novel, just referred to as the CIO. It is about a period in his life where he's coming off from being the recipient of the Times article of this is the CIO genius, coming out of a very proud, going through a soft patch that gets very difficult in terms of performance. And as that happens, he is dealing with both trustees, the university president, his staff, and a lot of people coming into his office asking for money as his life is tightening, his self-doubts are increasing until the novel ends. About a fifth of the novel is a scene where he meets this reclusive hedge fund manager, alumni of the university, very aloof from the university, and a scene where everything in his life and hopefully investing is brought into a very tense conversation. So you mentioned this as a fiction novel. The obvious question is, is this CIO based on a person or the individual stories based on actual managers? I'm trying to get away with everything. None of the main characters are based on anyone. I did that because there's sometimes in life where like laziness and conscientiousness merge. By not doing the research, by not sitting down in the office of a CIO and taking notes or a manager and asking them to see their pitch deck, but just saying, this is going to be forged in my imagination. I also was a little more free to write sort of a little more wit, less worried about the feelings of the person on the other side. The intention of all of it is to be true. This is not a satirical novel. There's some dramatic heightening, but it should make you wonder as a reader, this has to be X, Y, Z. So the purpose is not to have fantasy figures, but there's a trustee works for Goldman Sachs. I didn't make up the name. He's working for Big Bank Inc. And so there are references to existing firms, but those are always rooting into the real language rather than this is an analysis of Goldman Sachs or this is a true. But I did want to not get too clever about that. So before we dive into some of the storylines or really your perspectives on it, the insights that you bring to bear, where did all of that come from? We're living, we're observing we're reading, people are having lunch with CIOs, become friends with CIOs, and seeing pitches and read articles about VC. And so it's just been forged from this direct experience. Most of the speaking roles in the novel are from money managers of various asset classes, but there was an intentional effort to say, hey, this is lower middle market credit fund. This is the golden age of VC quant. I'm not going to cover every single sub-asset class. It was trying not to be too focused on private equity or too focused on a specific thing that I know the best. So whenever you sit down to do something like this, you are the author. There's always a perspective that you're bringing to bear from your experience. How do you describe what perspective you're bringing as the author to this? I'm the IR guy for the 180th largest private equity firm in America. Not a particularly important job in finance. And I joke, I'm the stable hand in finance, and I'm writing a book where I'm imagining I'm a jockey. So a lot of the CIO's sensibility is another path of my life had gotten me there. That sensibility is how I think about the world, my sense of humor, or a lot of that. I'm also in other characters, and other people are in the CIO. A few friends who have read the book are like, Gary, you're a very good CIO, and you've imagined <laughs> yourself as a CIO. Maybe you should just do the job instead of writing a book about it. 
And so I think he has a similar ironic remove and wore it lightly too, but found himself very good at it and very proud. And like a lot of novels, you want precipitating action or conflict or something. The self-doubt coming in after he thinks he's kind of figured it out is one where I have a tremendous amount of respect for people to do the CIO job because every day you're relearning things <laughs> that you thought that you had figured out about a manager disappointing you, manager surprising you, things you missed. And so that drama is what I was trying to say that he had a model and the novel's set in a time where the model doesn't really work. I'd love to dive into what you see as some of these challenges of the CIO. So clearly there's this performance pressure from the guy who was in the New York Times who's now not. What have you seen as how different CIOs respond to that performance pressure? It's a good question. It's hard because, as you know, a CIO doesn't make that many decisions a year. You're not running a pod for 0.72. The ability to move a highly illiquid portfolio is not easy. There's a lot of stages of grief when a portfolio is starting to move and first is denial. The markets can always be different tomorrow. The markets are wrong now. The markets are going to come. Or this manager's J-curve is deeper, but still. So I think those stages of grief is what I see. Various challenges, even defining success. I follow along, probably like you do, the P&I, the endowment tracker. The numbers are always surprising, but the five-year numbers, the 10-year numbers are pretty tight. And from very different sophistications, very different styles. One of the clear challenges that you describe is governance. And we just love your take on different types of challenges that you see in CIOs face with their governance. I made some joke about the old days, Ivy slipstreaming and board of trustees. And we all know there's some legacy institutions that still operate where you have a big partner at a big private equity firm or a big bank to ones where they really keep them pretty remove. This novel purposely, I tried to put it somewhere in the middle where the CIO has a rubber stamp IC that generally lets him do, but talking to him a lot and that soft pressure, this Goldman Sachs partner in there who's wonderfully foul-mouthed and everyone's favorite character in the book, feeling those soft pressures, those questions and you know, almost spousal, the relationship they have. It's like, I know you got to do your job, but what are you doing? So I think that that the CIO is on the fortunate end of this governance. The university president is shockingly nice to him relative to his own self-doubts and how hard he is on it. What I was trying to capture, the toughest middle case where it's not clearly just an irresponsibly managed institution, but also feels these real pressures. There's a reason that it's the CIO of a college endowment, the real pressures of that money. If I did this about like a family off, no one would care. I think a lot of the CIOs I've met and their purpose of life on earth has become that scholarship, that research budget, and wanted a hero of the book who felt that deeply, which is something very nice about that seat. And you feel that a little bit on our side of the table in professional life, a little bit more at a remove, like you're proud, but it's so abstract. And one thing I actually did for my own amusement is put him on the campus. A lot are not even close anymore. And I find that interesting in my fictional university, <laughs> have watched the students walk by every day as a reminder. So you go from managing up to the board and you have managing a team of people. What are some of the key 
challenges that you've seen for CIOs in being able to manage their team while managing a pool of assets? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest dispersions of talents in CIOs that I've seen. Because as you imagine, managing people and managing investments are not the same side of your brain. There's no a priori reason that someone should be skilled at both. And maybe there's, in fact, the opposite. If you're an analytical, quiet person, you actually don't want to manage people. The CIO definitely is on the side of, in a perfect world, he would do everything himself. And I think there are other CIOs like that. This is a very simplified investment office. There's really two deputy CIOs, managing directors under him that represent the opposite of it. One is just like a very attracted to the bright, shiny thing. A real calls you see how calls like a pop in jail. Yale is doing must. We all know that this exists, and he's just really into the horse race. Really, and the other one's very diligent, but almost the flaw he sees in her are some of his own flaws, of just feeling like you can master this is something that should be able to fit into the Excel formula. Making these capital decisions, which obviously is not something that if Excel had a formula, it would make everyone's life a lot easier. A lot of the book is framed around manager meetings. I'd love to talk about some of your perspectives with the different types of LPs that you encounter as a GP. I mean, I have a lot of time to observe it because remember in my role, I'm talking 5-10% of the time. And a lot of time I'm staring out the window, <laughs> looking at the people on the other side of the room. Occasionally they're like, why are you creeping on me, man? Like they're looking <laughs> at me. It's like, well, I have nothing to do. I've heard this pitch before. I wrote this pitch. I don't really have anything to do. So I'm going to study you as a human being. You can come out of meetings with the most enthusiastic, I call it buddy-buddy. And then for years, we thought they just loved us. Our spouses do not love us as much as these. And then you realize that's just who they are. Every single person who walks into that meeting, they're just enthusiastic people who generally appreciate intelligent people coming to talk about investing. And that has nothing to do with their ability to invest. On the opposite side, we're in meetings. Like, did they actually say anything during the meeting? Like statues. Sometimes it seems to be reflective of it didn't want us to be in the room. Sometimes there's also just a different personality, like where they're not interested in expressing their opinions. They're just studying. And then the one thing that we've always found super interesting is the questions that come up. Sometimes very detailed 2025 EBITDA projections. And this is a case of a private equity decision. What is the purpose of these questions? Are you curious and you're in a room and you might as well ask any question you're curious about? Is there a specific model, a formula on this? But yeah, it's quite amazing sometimes the depth of very random questions you get. How do you think about, from a CIO's perspective, or you as the CIO, what goes into the selection process for a manager? I talk about input, system, and hunger which is if you think about hedge funds, you think about a private equity firm, you think about anything, what is the input into this investment system? Is it shop deals from Goldman Sachs? Is it data on stock price performance you can get from Bloomberg that they're just smart people that can figure it out? That's frankly a lot of alternative assets is. If I were a CIO, that worse, is there a sector specialty? Is there some understanding of the data? Is there a data no one cares about? This input into whatever this model is, is hugely important. I think the second is the system of how they process it. Now, everyone pitches a very sophisticated system. We have this machine, and there's a scene in this about a guy who failed at private equity, but calling bullshit on the machine, because especially in private equity, you don't get that many at-bats in the course of a career. But there has to be some system other than 
We're smart guys who know a lot of people. And then hunger is the one that probably the Excel formula doesn't get right. And probably one of the hardest things to do for people in a CIO seat is these natural life of a money management firm. You want someone whose life depends on it, but you also want them to prove that their inputs and systems work. And you don't want them looking at their uh, Hamptons real estate and spending four other seven hour workday looking at art to hang on the wall and to try to find what is the optimal hunger and also when to get off a successful relationship because you can feel that hunger. And it's got to be extraordinarily difficult to do because usually that hunger dissipates after success. And you probably want to be off manager before that hunger dissipates. But it takes an incredible amount of fortitude to say to someone across the table, hey, I know you're getting rich, sloppy, and lazy. You're not there yet, but you're going to be there in nine months. I can predict that. And I don't want to be there when that happens because usually you're there after it happens. Within that broad categorization of what you're looking for, you've been in a lot of meetings where there are a lot of little things that you pick up. I'd love to hear some of your favorite ones of things that managers might do in meetings that a CIO might see as a negative. There's one chapter that a lot of people who have read it, it's the cringe chapter, but also the one that they enjoy, one of the pitch deck and just the absolute cliches of the pitch deck. And I have tremendous sympathy for that because as a writer and as someone pitching, there isn't a hundred ways to describe system input hunger. There are these things people talk about exactly the same. And so how to not cause that eye rolling, proprietary deals, the funnel, the sheet of paper where somehow God has made it, you're the only uncompetitive sector in the entire history of finance capitalism that these are put out. ChatGPT didn't need to be invented because people were doing it themselves. The bland, formulaic nature of it. So I think that is one. And then a lot of the things I just had fun with, I do phone lock screens. I'm very fascinated by it. And, And there's a thing, we all know everyone brings their phone to the meeting and they look at it and they're very disappointed that they're gonna have to be in this meeting and not look at their phone, but they leave it on the table. I'm gonna be there for your buddy in an hour. Just hold on. But then when they're locking their phone, you can see their picture. And I'm always very fascinated. People have pictures of themselves (laughs) and they have children. Things like that, these human clues that a novelist is supposed to pick up, but a CIO is also supposed to pick up. The CIO not only talks about these clues, but also, again, there is no formula. The guy's a raging narcissist. He has three kids, but has a picture of him at the Super Bowl with Tom Brady or something, whatever it is, instead of his three kids. Maybe a raging narcissist is good as an investor. Maybe a raging narcissist is a sign of outperformance. And so it's like that second iteration that even if you have fun, interesting ways of picking up human clues, because so much of this is human clues, it doesn't necessarily give you the answer. What are some of your other favorite tricks for picking up human clues? A friend of mine always loves PGA golf. You can go on the PGA website and see people's handicap. There is different views on golf as an important business thing, and you have a lot of time on your hands. I talk about how polite folks are to assistants, cab drivers, and stuff like that. But again, is being a jerk to the assistant necessarily dispositive of being a bad investor or a good investor? So these like human clues. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000 
25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What do you think and what you've seen are the most interesting questions that a CIO asks of managers? Great question. There's a philosophical one, which is repeated a lot in the book. Why are you doing this? I joke, all my friends got rich in private equity. Why not me? School of private equity. There's a lot of firms. That is the organizing thesis of that firm. All my friends got rich in private equity. Why not me? So I think, first of all, what is the passion and differentiation bringing to this business? Why does this firm need to exist? A very philosophical one that I think is hugely important and I see interesting CIOs getting to. And the other one is CIOs have everyone pitching them is long. Some thesis or some asset class. The best of CIOs are like, hey, does this idea you have that whatever it is, you know, lower middle market industrial businesses, you think you're paying little in leverage. You, you think your multiples are cheap. But hey, I have 12 other private equity strategies that do it. I think that big lie in the sense of the organizing principle of a firm tends to often be random because this is the history of my career. This is what I've always done. And so for the CIO to be able to say, hey, I don't need exposure to this. The best CIOs I see are ones who, in a polite way, can see if there's something missing in their thesis that this sector of the energy side, I'm looking for innovation. I'm not looking for value, or I'm looking for value, not innovation. A big endowment just said, growth equity doesn't work. So things like that. There's a pretty amazing talent in the meetings and in general to say, hey, nothing to do with them as a manager, but I have this insight, what works and what doesn't work. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that one of the characters in this investment team is someone who, whatever Yale's doing, I want to go chase that momentum. What have you seen in your seat about how some of the investor community behaves relative to what they're hearing from others? They're humans. FOMO is the chief driver of a lot of human behavior, and it's not like investing is going to be immune from that. I also think that the one thing we have to remind ourselves on our side of the table is the job of a capital allocator is to generate returns, but the job of a capital allocator is also to have a job. One sees the safety in slipstreaming, the safety in numbers, and the fact that they're not just there to maximize returns. Very have to be concerned about volatility. There's real institutions they support. So I think sometimes the pitching crowd gets frustrated. At the same time, you have a certain amount of schadenfreude when it goes wrong because there's also just a lot of laziness. And so to try to find that CIO who can combine that independence of thought, but also understanding that there is some need to not make every single decision 
they do an interesting, edgy decision. It's hard. It takes tremendous conviction and keeping your job loosely, I guess, in a way. Having sat in the seat you've been in for 20 years, you have lots of relationships with lots of these people. How do you describe the nature of the actual relationship between a CIO and the principles of a firm? It's a very strange one where I think our side, we presume they think about us more maybe than they do. Maybe this is incorrect because, you know, you're realistically a CIO is not going to every annual meeting unless it's a very glamorous one. But even there, your cocktail party conversation about kids and summer plans and things like that. And then in a meeting, the CIO is talking or whatever person on the LP side is talking 15% of the time at most. And so I think there's this presumption because you're known someone for 10 years, 15 years, but the amount of time of actual human interaction, do you know how many children the CIO has? You have to listen to capital allocators, final questions and know what he likes to do. It's a very strange relationship for groups that obviously economic life is tied together where not individually, there's not one CIO to one thing, but the collective judgment of CIOs on our business or any money manager's business is so subject to people you don't actually know that well, but you think you know that well because of repeated exposure. And I think one of the great challenges on the CIO side is your job is to figure out systems input hunger, the soul of these people pitching you, but you're seeing them in very controlled context for the most part. I'd love to dive in on some of your thoughts on whether it's the strategies or the archetypes that you describe. And I can just walk through, you've mentioned a couple of times, the lower mid-market private equity firm. What are some of the things that you teased out when you were talking about that example? In this case, I wanted an example of a firm that didn't do well. And this comes at the end of the book, amps up the despair of the CIO because the CIO had made a big bet relatively. He's not picking 50 lower middle market. So this is one of the bets. This was about how few decisions in a lower middle market private equity firm separate success and failure genius and idiot and zombie. And I had a count. Six things we sold too early. Five deals that we decided not to do, but there were ours to do. We could have paid 2% more. We just decided not to do. Four things we did and were zeros. This game of inches for a firm that has obviously some success at the beginning to achieve some institutional success. Ecclesiastes, time and chance happen to us all is in that of a business that's so hard and whether the firms we think of genius, there's a survivor bias to that based on if you just think about, yes, you can say, well, someone made the right decisions, but those very few decisions can really determine the life and the reputation and the success of these guys. How does that lead you to think about the distinction between luck and skill? Well, that's the central question in life, finance, Ray Dalio in current headlines, a thing that everyone understood to be full skill. And so the book doesn't have any particular answers to that. That's why finance investing is humanly interesting for people who are not generally baseline in this industry. That is a central question of how we deal. It's thousands of years old talking about not the race to the swift or the contest to the strong. We have those same challenges on an investing side too, when we're talking about a management team that sold a company and coming back again. Do you get one of these in life? Do you get three? How about the other one you mentioned, the hot VC firm? Yeah. And this one I had a lot of fun with. And it's just so central to returns today. And returns today in 2021. The novel was finished in 2019. 
that era of the 2010s, both the S&P tech winners driving it and VC is a big difference in performance between the winners and losers of capital allocators over the decade. Then the self-importance of it is what I've always been very intrigued and fascinated by. This VC firm had IPO that went bust, one of these home delivery meal companies, and then had an Uber for babysitters was a great, great win. There's actually now an Uber for babysitters, but I was like, I invented that in a novel in 2019, so I should get some warrants. The one thing I'm really fascinated is the need to make this a philosophy, to make this a structure, to make this a long LinkedIn post, to make this a TED talk about what investing is, what meaning is, and to analogize to science when, in fact, it's just as hard as the lower middle market guy in hoping luck and skill gets you there. And the lower middle market guy was in a sector that didn't have those tremendous tailwinds. He leads himself to self-pity. And cursing is bad luck, where the VC leads himself to peacock way announcing how the world works, which that hubris follows almost automatically any hot sector. So a lot of private equity has been hot for a while too. And you have a different take on it of your run-of-the-mill private equity firm. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on the good and the bad of that. I have so much sympathy for capital allocator to trying to choose between them because ultimately the business model is pretty standardized now. There is some sense of you can get queued on leverage and it helps in a bull market. And now the guys who queued on leverage are going to face their consequences. But the thing is, I thought about it for the novel of trying to say, hey, can't pay more than nine times, two turns of leverage and be in these three sectors. But it is from a sector that is very small decisions on very specific people. I talk about thousands of things happening in those companies in a competitive market that it's amazing if someone does have persistence. That was the one that probably I let the gloves off (laughs) a little more than any other chapter in it. And just partly, I think, and unrelated to like the economic business of it. But more of the CIO is a CIO of the old school who, fair deal, you guys can all get rich. I'm not going to complain about two and 20. I believe in you to generate alpha for it. And he's just offended for two reasons. One, the proof of excess management fees. And second, if you talk to some of the guys in the GP stakes funds, it's a bet on the excess management fees rather than outperformance. And so he spends every moment of his day trying to find outperformance, which one would think in a GP stakes fund would be a fundamental underwriting thing rather than an ability to aggregate assets. So he's offended in two ways. One, it was just, there's a deal in this business. You can have the Hamptons house on carry and you can have the Park Avenue co-op on management fees, but selling 20% of them seems to be a little bit of violation of a very old school. And then the second is that underwriting. And obviously the CIO would be considered a fuddy-duddy People have sold the GP stakes funds that have a lot of very sophisticated and very well-regarded. But I allowed myself to make them a little idiosyncratically fuddy-duddy in this one area. Especially with the years you spent in the energy sector. How about your thoughts on ESG? Yeah, that was third rail that I didn't want to do too much on. I also felt it'd be a little tacky to not have anything about it. How I dealt with it in the novel was to think about the pressure of the CIO a line that I often repeat to CIOs, which is like, it's 3% of the portfolio, but 97% of our headaches. And so really tried to dramatize that and the feelings around that 
of this is such a hard job to do with all the other things to try to deal with small parts of our portfolio that are just lightning rods for it. There's a activist professor on campus who there's a lot of jokes told at his expense from the trustee and the CIO sort of defending it. But then the CIO, as much as it's a clear cut, leave me alone. I'm busy. I don't have time for this. The university president's like, you're a good person. You're doing this and not working at another part because you believe in the mission of the university. You want to be remembered as someone exceptional at this job and the use of proceeds. So why wouldn't you think about that? When you've thought through all of these different angles from the perspective of the CIO as you, as you wrote this novel, what have you taken away that makes for a great CIO? A couple of things. One we've talked about, which is manager of people and manager of investments. Man, oh man. <laughs> that is a rare talent to have talents on that side. I think second is confidence when not to be interesting. I think certain institutions, Yale, MIT, have the resources to always be interesting. Everything they do is interesting. But for something without resources, without that access, maybe the answer is an ETF. Maybe the answer is a Blackstone fund. Maybe it's just base infra. I'm a very infrequent poker player and a very amateur one. And I just like to have fun on a very low stakes game. But there's like a poker term called tight aggressive, which is you're super conservative. It's like very annoying if a friend of yours is this type of poker player, fold, 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 when you have mediocre hands. And then when you have something good, you're aggressive. And that poker player doesn't care about being interesting. He doesn't care about having fun. I think there's something that I've seen that not everything has to be cool. Not everything has to be the most wonderful niche idea. There's some things that I just need in certain areas, just base beta or exposure. And then I'm going to be aggressive in certain areas where I think I really have an advantage or have access to a mantra as an advantage. So towards the end of the book, as you mentioned earlier, there's this reclusive, brilliant hedge fund gazillionaire who happens to be an alum who espouses his view on the world, which I interpret as maybe part of that is your view on the world too. Would love to get your thoughts on, we're in a different environment, people thinking about investing for the next decade, what this reclusive billionaire, or I could take care of you, think about how people should frame the investment problem. A couple of contexts on this. One, a character a novelist can't write is a better writer than the novelist. A novelist can write a better investor than the novelist. So me, I may still be on capital allocators, but it would be in my Park Avenue, a six floor suite. I think this is with humility around there. Second is the origin of the character was to try to reverse engineer, in my mind, independent of human constraints. And so part of this scene and this final scene is patterned a little bit after the Grand Inquisitor and the Brothers Karamazov, where I think I'm every bit I don't want Michael Herman or the CIO ever to be wrong. And they disagree on a lot. So as much as I'm in every character, this is definitely not my dream is to become a weirdly computer brain, asexual monster of the markets who's also extraordinarily successful. That is no aspiration of mine. But you, know, you reverse engineer it and it's like Swenson, it's Buffett. How could you do it? Eliminate the agency problem. So he doesn't have anyone working for him, and he uses outsourced Indian engineers and doctors. There's a very obnoxious line, anthropomorphized, which are actually people, this data. He tried to solve the agent. So it's just like, it's him. So he's in big liquid stocks. It's him. It's also like the equity bias. He went to a family office model. He has this few mystery LPs 
that there's a line in there. I told them if they ever ask me a question again, I'm kicking them out. <laughs> he is this mystery figure in finance and the construct of his novel. And then there is this sense, and this is the hardest thing, and one of the great mysteries of the market, his line is laziness and stupidity are fundamental human characteristics. So why would anyone think that is not applicable in the market? The market is obviously inefficient. It's just inefficient in impossible to predict ways when it comes to individual stock stuff. His speech he gives, he's a pretty difficult person in the libertarian SBF, that school of hedge fund data genius. He's open. The lessons I'm teaching you, you already know, which is equity bias, Buffett. Eliminate the agency from Swenson. Like, there is no great revelation, but the trick is how do you apply that with discipline? In the case of him, he became an inhuman monster of some way of the market, which I would not advise to anyone. What did you learn from writing this book that you didn't really feel you necessarily knew before you set out to do it? It's a great question. I think I learned and had to think about much more sympathy for the job of a capital allocator than I ever had. Obviously, in my life, they play a functional role. Dead leads. I'm trying to get people to do things, and 99% of the time, they don't do things, and they annoy me for not doing things. I tend to look at them trying to imagine how challenging that is. Gave me a lot of respect when you try to really sit down and think about what is the daily life? What is the inner life? What is the challenge? And I think the second is, is it solvable? That's what the final scene is about. It is solvable. We've always known the answer. <laughs> you losers are just limited by children <laughs> and lives and colleagues and desires to go have golf shirts and stuff buy it. So the other one is how do you manage that fundamental conflict that we feel like we have an answer in investing already? And yet we have worlds, hundreds of thousands of people trying to come up with different answers. In your Running around over the last 20 years, I'd love to ask if there's a few examples of lessons you've learned from CIOs. What makes a good CIO makes what makes a good person? So I think like curiosity. So I think you have John McGuire, who's at the Pritzker Foundation, Damian Cody, who's taken over. They're definitely curious in the way of how this sector, how these businesses generate returns in a very, very thoughtful way. And so that's incredibly interesting that you walk out of that meeting shocked. I have not really examined my book because this is the book of investments because this is what we sell and we just think it's good. The ability to that curiosity in the meetings, they're actually trying to look at the gears of what we're trying to say in ways that we probably don't understand the gears fully ourselves. I think the other curiosity, we have had a lot of investors become friends and Ellen Schumann line of the Swenson tree, the Ellen Schumann branch. So this is Lisa Mall and Kim Liu and Meredith Jenkins and Niles Bryan, Ken Lee, and their curiosity of people and motivations and how you think. And I think one thing I've learned from that crowd, I have an analogy from it, which is when politics, they often say like, vote for a senator or a congress because of their politics and a president because of the character. Because a president's going to not they don't always have great character. So this is a better <laughs> analogy in 2012, maybe, than in 2016. But anyway, there's the idea that what's going to befall a president, we'd have no idea. And we know the politics we want to vote for. And I always thought in hedge funds, you back them for their returns, but in private equity, you back for their character. Because in a 10-year locked-up fund, so from this crowd of the Allen, it's like trying to understand the character of people in a not obnoxious way. I've always admired that as part of the investment process. 
there's humility and patience. And that goes back to like tight aggressive. So I can think Alison Thacker and John Lawrence at Rice, there is a humility and a patience to really like when we see something good where we have an advantage, we're going to allow a portfolio that's not conventionally balanced. We're going to be contrarian. We're going to hug the index in certain cases because that equity bias is good and we don't care that everyone's like, oh, that's a yawner. So that humility and patience combination is also something I think I've learned a lot from folks. Any others? Neil Triplett at Dumac is one where there's a fundamental kindness there that I've always been interested in. A grace, if you will, a longstanding investor with ours. It's a somewhat inspiring to go in and know this person is very busy, makes time to meet the managers, ask fair, thoughtful questions. Again, I don't know how many children he has. There is a decency that's also almost inspiring to the managers coming in because you know you're going to get a fair hearing and you know we're on the same team. Now, it doesn't always do what we want them to do, obviously. Maybe there's something in the water. Maybe Coach K gave him some tips on how to get people to play in Durham that he's very good at that one. Gary, as you alluded to, we need to get a little bit inside of your head and you with our closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Hiking, which the irony is we moved from 21 years in New York City to even a lower sea level in New Orleans. So despite hiking and feeling most at home in the mountains, I've managed to spend the last 28 years comically far from them. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? I talk to myself a lot out loud, sometimes reciting scenes in other voices. And I do this at home and get caught by my wife and daughter a lot. But I don't think most people look at me, average in a meeting, it's like, that's some mumbling guy, like a chingigante down Sullivan Street. But I'm <laughs> in the house. It can be a little frightening. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think broadly bad writing, needless words. A subgenre of that is when I'm being spun <laughs> by someone using needless words and bad language because there's condescension and an arrogance to it that jugular sticks out. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? That's an easy one because there's two founders of Lime Rock that I've been working for 20 years, and it's John Reynolds and Jonathan Farber. I think about it, there's three things. One, they find investing interesting. The book is about investing is interesting. It's a lifelong project. They're listening to you. They're reading books. The quest never ends to understand how to think about these ideas. I think second, they started the firm when they were 28 and 30. They had never worked in private equity. They never worked on the buy side. So to see how you invent a culture, invent a private equity firm, it's amazing you're allowed to do that in this world and $10 billion later. So that's been a very inspiring. And then I think the third is they've sense of humor, self-deprecation, democracy, economics, and power of how an initial partnership can sometimes curdle into people not talking to each other, but also a partnership can also, without a single dominant figure, can also spread a culture of partnership and a culture of no one taking themselves as too irreplaceable and too serious. What's the best advice you've ever received? I don't know if it's the best, but the one I implement the most is my grandfather started, my father worked there at the start of his career, a trucking company in Milwaukee. And they had a huge sign, the warehouse said, the customer is always right. I was a little kid, I would go and you see the customer's always right. Obviously, they knew that's ironic, it's paradoxical, but they fiercely believed it. And I think the advice, there's very rare times in my life, especially in my job, where I don't think the customer is always right. That servant leadership, this sense of this is your job, they are paying you, is something that probably I implement the most often. 
And Gary, last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? When I quit Goldman Sachs to become a writer, I was going to be Saul Bellow. I was going to be Philip Roth. And I think now, 30 years later, knowing successful people in all lines, even the most successful people are millions of miles away from the sun. Satisfaction is going to come from my wife and my daughter and my friends and my colleagues and my writing and the relationships I build. It's not going to come from the number of books sold or the prizes won, which is good because I've won no prizes. I've not sold that many books. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, I think a lot of people are going to quite enjoy this one. So I want to thank you for sharing just great wisdom insights from a couple of decades listening to these CIOs around the world. I appreciate being on. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one and see you next time.